On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Now, over the course of the 20th century, the use of the hunger strike would become synonymous with Ireland for many causes. It would lead, once upon a time, to the death of the Lord Mayor of Cork, Terence McSweeney. Um, as we all remember, it polarised Irish politics in the 1980s around the H-blocks. Um, but on this date, September the 25th, died Thomas Ash in 1917. Now, Ash's death was the first of its kind, and it was a, a surprise to many because he'd only actually gone on hunger strike just about six days earlier, on September the 20th. So how did all of this come to pass? And if you're thinking, that's a story that only Donald Fallon can tell. That's right. You are. In fact, it is a story that only Donald Fallon can tell. And he is back in studio with back. us. And he is and back to tell us about it. Hello, especially to the woman on O'Connell Street who stopped me yesterday and said, I can't believe they're taking you off the radio. I'm back on the radio. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to just offer my reassurance to that that uh, that wizened old lady on O'Connell Street that no, we would never do such a thing. And we're delighted that Donald is back. And um, as we mentioned there, there are certain names that, that come to mind when we're talking about hunger strikes. But the origins of hunger striking in Ireland are kind of surprising. Yeah, we think about hunger strikes as kind of long, protracted uh, struggles, if you will, between prisoners and the authorities. So Terence McSweeney, uh, the story of McSweeney is extraordinary. 74 days on hunger strike in London, you know, in, in, in Brixton prison. That really drew the attention of the world on, onto that cause. And there's a documentary exploring the death of Bobby Sands that takes its name uh, from the length of his hunger strike, 66 days. Mm. So, yeah, when we think of hunger strikes, it's McSweeney, it's Sands. And these are things that went on for months, you know, and, and the world watched them happen uh, in real time. But I suppose the origins of the hunger strike uh, and in this country as well are, are somewhat surprising. Mm. Uh, the use of the hunger strike tactic, believe it or not, in these islands began with women and, and the suffragettes. The earliest one I can okay. find, 1909, uh, Marion Dunlop, suffragette in England, goes on hunger strike. Never been done before. The movement outside prison was a little bit unsure about the wisdom of the tactic. But after 91 hours of fasting, 91 hours, okay. Dunlop's released uh, on the grounds of, of She's health. She's altogether. After 91 hours. So I imagine the so suffragette movement in Britain said, okay. this could work. This could work going forward. And then the, the WSPU, which is the, the main suffragette body in England, they give her what they call the Hunger Strike Medal and they go on to bestow it on dozens of women, uh, dozens of women who use yeah. that same uh, tactic during the campaign for women's votes. So that's Marion Dunlop and that's across the water in 1909. Um, even in Ireland, the first people to, to to try this, to go on hunger strike, are also English suffragettes, but they're, it's maybe not as popular yeah. with the suffragettes so in this side of the water. They're not just suffragettes, they're English suffragettes. That's really important. They yeah. travel over to Dublin uh, in 1912. The Prime Minister's in town, Asquith. And uh, yeah, they don't really endear themselves to the people of Dublin. I mean, they throw a hatchet at the Prime Minister's <laughs> car. <laughs> which is okay. That's one form of street politics, isn't yeah. it? And wrapped around it is the message, the symbol of the extinction of the Liberal Party forevermore. And of course, okay. they, they fail to hit Asquith uh, and they graze poor old John Redmond, the home ruler, who's <laughs> uh, sitting beside what, him in the car. Uh, but I'm impressed that is that you know, they decided that they'd throw a hatchet, but that the, this is written on a note around it so that at some point someone would very, you know, in an orderly way, catch the hatchet and unfurl the little yeah. note that was attached and, to it. And yeah. Chucking a hatchet at the Prime Minister isn't enough. Uh, they then try and burn down the Theatre Royal, a beloved Dublin institution <laughs> that Asgood was due to speak in. So right. Irish suffragettes took a kind of dim view of these English adventurists, you know, arriving into Dublin, throwing themselves into a very disruptive form of protest. Mm. Uh, and these women are, are sentenced to, to Mount Joy Prison and they embark on a hunger strike. So something we think of as being synonymous with Bobby Sands, Terence McSweeney. Yeah. It's so odd, isn't it? That the first people who do it in Ireland uh, are English suffragettes, but they don't let them out. They don't let them out after 91 days. These women are held for months on end yeah. uh, and they're force fed. And that's so, the beginning of that sad story too. So I suppose it doesn't go the same way that Marion Dunlop who get out after 91 hours uh, for the way she did it. Um, the big question in politics uh, across the water then at the time, because this is kind of becoming kind of almost voguish, 
is how do we stop this happening? And, and that leads then to new laws which try to stop it from happening. Yeah, there's a big debate in, Brit- in British politics around force-feeding hunger strikers, which is really dangerous. I mean, it's designed to strip power and agency away from the prisoners. Mm. You know, you, you, you can't take that form of protest on Airwatch. And it certainly does that. But it brings about you know, physical strains on the human body. If you pierce a lung, as we'll hear happens with Ash, oh. you, can, you can kill the prisoner. So the authorities are really worried about the rise of this tactic. And then the nightmare scenario happens, which is that working-class men in one London prison uh, go on hunger strike in protest the conditions. So it moves from being something that's done by kind of angry middle-class suffragettes mm. to something that's being done right across the board. So you don't want martyrs on your hands, I suppose, in Westminster. That's the view of the day. So they draw up what they call the Cat and Mouse Act, which is really weird. It's a, a policy that allows you to release prisoners that are weakened by hunger strike uh, and on risk of death, and then you bring them back in after they've recovered. So, so, uh, so they go on hunger strike until the point where they're basically emaciated to the point of death. You let them out. You allow them to retain some level of health and then as soon as they're up for it again yeah. you just bring them back in. You bring them back in. It, it's nuts, isn't it? But the line in the press, you know, to quote the, the Belfast newsletter is, if these hunger strikers were allowed to starve, there'd be a general feeling that they brought their faith in themselves. But since it's undesirable that any martyrs should be manufactured, it would be well to devise other methods for dealing with these, quote, misguided women. So, yeah, they don't know what to do, but I yeah. suppose the main worry in Westminster on the Prime Minister's desk is, we don't want a load of suffragette martyrs. Uh, I, I, it's a novel way of getting around it, I suppose, albeit hardly an ideal one. Um, in time, the English suffragettes put their own campaign on ice and then you have Ireland emerging as this kind of main battlefield for hunger striking. Uh, 1917, the, the year that Thomas Ashe goes on hunger strike, is also a weird time because obviously it's landing between some key moments in, in the story of this island. Yeah, the British suffragettes kind of decide when the war breaks out, okay, the best thing we can do now to get votes for women uh, is to play a part in the war effort. So even those like hatchet throwers who came to Dublin, they end up volunteering <laughs> in the war effort. I think one of them drives an ambulance in the war. Like They, they all throw themselves behind the, the national flag. But in Ireland, of course, things go in a different direction. Mm. And this new chapter opens up in the story of hunger striking. And as you make that point, it's like nine. 1917. It's a weird time, isn't yeah. it? It's between it's two that landmark kind of historical events. void where you're thinking, what happened in Ireland around this time? Yeah. You know what happened in 16 and in 18 and in 19 and 21? Don't know what happened in 1917. Yeah. The Easter Risings in the rearview mirror and the kind of the 1918 general election is, is ahead of you. And this guy Thomas Ashe is the quintessential Irish nationalist. I mean, you couldn't draw up a better Irish nationalist than this. He is a Gaelgor. He's in the ranks of the Gaelic League. They send him to America to fundraise for the Gaelic League. He's a musician. Uh, proud member of the Black Raven pipe band and after he dies it's images of Ash kind of clutching the pipes in uniform that become synonymous with him he's in the GAA he's a member of the Fenians he's sympathetic (laughs) to the labour movement and this is the big thing He's a 1916 veteran and he's not someone who was in the post office. He was involved in the, the fighting in Ashburn, County Mead, kind of far from Dublin City. But, you know, incredibly what happened out there, it looked a lot more like the, the War of Independence yeah. than the rest of the Rising. They, they were like a flying column. You know, they were striking and moving the whole time. Yeah. And it was the, the rarest of things. You know, it was an Irish military victory. So that kind of made Ash this quintessential, uh, universally popular figure, but also the quintessential Irish revolutionary. Yeah. It just reminds us again, because I'm sure that we've done this slot of the programme before, but what happened in Ashburn was basically that they, they kind of broke the order or they just kind of started ahead of time and that they basically then, did they seize a British barracks because they the British weren't the barracks around. and then they, 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 they armed themselves by doing that and yeah. then they're on the run. So it's it's much more a kind of what we would associate with the, the flying columns of yeah, 1919, yeah. 1920. Uh, so back to Thomas Ashe then. Um, so the Rising's already happened. The, the War of Independence is still two years away. So so what exactly does Thomas Ashe end up in jail for? Words. Uh, he gives a, a seditious <laughs> right. speech at Ballinalee in, in, in Longford and also on, the, on the, the podium that day was a young man on his way to public property 
prominence uh, called Michael Collins. Okay. And yeah, the the defense of the Realm Act that's in power, uh, that's in, in in place during the war, means that you know seditious speeches, you know drilling in public, all of these things can can land you uh, behind bars. So the prisons are beginning to fill up uh, with political prisoners, but they're not viewed as political prisoners mm. in the eyes of the law, and that's what they want. So it's inevitable, really, that prisoners would seek political status. And Ash and others believe that the way to do that is by hunger striking. So on the 20th of September, Ash, uh, Austin, Stack, a number of prisoners in Mountjoy uh, all go on hunger strike. And there's very little international attention on this. I mean, people are yeah. kind of weary of the, the hunger strike tactic. It was so common in British public life that the, the world almost, media... It almost wasn't newsworthy. Yeah, like, they don't really remarkable. notice this, at yeah. least initially. Um, we mentioned that he died only uh, five days. He was committed to prison on the 20th of September. He died uh, on this date, the 25th. So it was five or maybe into a sixth day. That in itself obviously is unusual, which kind of then begs the question as to to what really went on. And you wonder, was it a case that this had never happened before? And was it a case that like doctors and prison staff didn't really know what they were doing? Because obviously having someone die of hunger strike after only five days is a bit of an embarrassment for those in charge. Yeah, when I touched on, on, on how it happened earlier, you kind of winced and it does sound like a horrible, horrible way to die. Officially, Ash dies of, of heart failure and congestion of the lungs. But that's because there's a pierced lung uh, accidentally brought about by the I, doctors. Yeah, and I, I think, yeah, the inexperience of dealing with a prisoner uh, in this circumstance in Mountjoy was certainly at, at play here. And then he becomes instantly this kind of cause celeb, you know, of the Irish Revolution uh, after the rising. He's all over the international press in, in, in the days that follow. And it really leaves the authorities worried, you know, that perhaps Irish nationalists are going to utilise this tactic uh, that they hoped would end with the suffragettes. So it had ne- never gone as far. Suffragettes had died after being on hunger strike in the aftermath of it, mm. often heart failure. But, you know, to, to, to die in this circumstance six days into a hunger strike, as you say, that's a very different thing. Uh, I also I have to admit that I'm slightly wincing because I'd never contemplated that when you talk about force feeding a somebody who's on hunger strike, I'd always kind of thought it was, well, they're on hunger strike, so it's nil by mouth. So they're just going to have some food shoved down their throat, whether mm. you like it or not. I, I didn't think that they would find some other orifice or some other cavity by which they could try and force the food into you. And I, that's, that's extraordinary. That I'm, extraordinary. I'm most wincing about. Um, as tends to happen uh, at this time of the century in Ireland, um, Thomas Ashe's funeral kind of really galvanises the public but but it also shows the direction that things were quickly moving in and maybe it was a direction that was catching people by surprise about yeah. how quickly it was coming. Funerals, they do funerals very well you know in, in Revolutionary <laughs> Ireland there's about 30,000 people on the streets at, at Thomas Ashe's funeral but there's this weird kind of deja vu and often when you're looking at pictures of this funeral you can mistake them for one four years earlier which was uh, O'Donovan Rossa you know the veteran Fenian yeah. who died in a, a Staten Island nursing home and they eventually brought him back Is that where he died? He I dies in a, a nursing home in Staten Island they bring his body everywhere around mm. the US and eventually he arrives back in Ireland Because I remembered uh, you know the, the, the oration that Pierce gives and it's all about you know the fools the fools the fools and you know until Ireland free Ireland unfree will never be at peace uh, you kind of assume that because of the circumstances of it that O'Donovan Rossa has died in some you know heroic martyrdom way rather than just passing away in yeah, a nursing home yeah. because he was an old they, man. They never got him on the hangman's yeah. noose so they wanted him on and that oration that was given by Pierce I mean yeah look those words would linger over Ireland uh, there's a mural in Boston that had those words on it there's a, a, several murals in Belfast Ireland and free shall never be at peace this time uh, 1917 there's no such speech there's a volley of shots that rings out in Glasnevin and then Collins steps forward I think this is the making of Michael Collins he says nothing additional remains to be said 
that volley which we have just heard is the only speech which it is proper to make above the grave of a dead Fenian. Just an extraordinary wow. speech. That's Brilliant. What a sentence. I mean, that's a tweet. You know, you can fit <laughs> one of the greatest speeches that's of Irish it, yeah. history and you can fit it into Michael a Collins single subtweeted the, subtweeted the Brits. There and you know. for the revolutionary movement, it's a weird time, you know, because uh, one volunteer he remembered, Paddy Kelly, he said that they'd so few rifles that after they fired the volley of shots, they were quickly passed back through the crowd and taken away. They couldn't afford to lose a single one of them. And another volunteer who was there, he was really struck by the day, the people, the energy. And he said, look, the country at that time was travelling faster than the leaders anticipated. Mm. In other words, things were heating up and people were kind of ahead of the volunteers. But Ash, he's 32. I mean, not 32 now. I find that amazing. 32 years of age. I find that amazing that you're uh, only 32, just for, <laughs> yeah. for entirely separate reasons. 32 years of age, uh, which, you know, Michael Collins was, I think, 26 when he was involved in the, in the Easter Rising. Mm. Revolution is a young man's game, but 32 uh, on the 25th September 1917. And you wonder, you know, how many young men and women were moved by that debt uh, into taking action in the period in that followed. It's a real catalyst. Just like O'Donovan yeah. Ross's funeral, mm-hmm. Thomas Ashes was a real catalyst. Uh, Thomas Ash, who died on this day uh, in 1917. Uh, one of the reasons why I said that I'm always perpetually surprised as to your relative youth is that, you know, when we do your, your usual wrap-up at the end and we go, ah, yeah, he's a curator of the Community View blog and he presents the podcast and he wrote the Community <laughs> books in the Henry Street. Because at, at the ripe old age of 32, you've got a third book out on the market. Three yeah, Castles Burning, um, the podcast becomes a book. A History of Dublin and Twelve Streets. I wrote it during the last lockdown uh, when things were beginning to come back to normal. And yeah, I walked down these streets. Some of them are big names, you know, the streets like Moor Street. Uh, some of them are, are, are lesser known like Fishamble Street, but it's mm. kind of observations on, on Twelve Streets in Dublin written at a very strange time. Um, I um, I didn't even know that that was the point you've written at and now I'm just even insanely jealous that you managed to channel lockdown into something decent <laughs> because everyone else is like oh I wrote a book no during lockdown no, I, I started a podcast <laughs> like what did I I didn't do any of that stuff in lockdown uh, Donald Fallon's Three Castles Burning uh, the book uh, The History of the Capital City in 12 Streets uh, now also available in all good bookshops and probably a pretty decent Christmas present because it's not too early to start thinking about it it's only 91 days or something until the next Christmas there'll be no Christmas lights but it's, there will be books it's thir- thir- 13 weeks today it's flying around um, and of course if, if they've already got that in their lives then of course Donald Fallon is also the author of the Come Here to Me and Henrietta Street from Tenement to Suburbia books and he's the presenter of the Three Castles Burning podcast uh, about the history of the capital anywhere you get your audio online On the Record with Gavin Riley, Brought to you by PwC Sunday morning at 11 On News Talk.